Let us start off with a marriage blessing. Mr. and Mrs. McDonald, will you come up here? I'm a MacDonald, no relation. Maybe in the old country. Right here in the spotlight so we can see you and everybody watching on Facebook can see you. Bow your heads, join your hands. Where did you get married at? Gross Point. And now your journey has brought you here. And who knows where we go next. Let's pray. Holy Father, you created humankind in your own image and made man and woman to be joined as husband and wife in union of body and heart and so fulfill their mission in this world. Father, to reveal the plan of your love, you made the union of husband and wife an image, an image of the covenant between you and your people. In the fulfillment of this sacrament, the marriage of Christian man and woman is a sign, a sign of the marriage between Christ and his church. Father, stretch out your hand today and bless Paul and Diane just as you blessed them with your covenant sacrament 40 years ago on this date. Lord, grant that as they renew their covenant commitment with you and with each other, they may always share with one another the gifts of your love, being one in heart and mind as witnesses to your presence in their home and in their hearts and in this marriage. Give your blessings to Diane that she may continue to be a good wife, mother, and grandmother, faithful in love for her husband, generous and kind. Give your blessings to Paul, your son, so that he may continue to be a faithful husband, father, and grandpa. Lord, grant as they have joined together at your table here on earth, so may they one day have the joy of sharing forever your banquet feast in heaven. And may Almighty God bless you and keep you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may kiss your bride. Congratulations. Happy anniversary. Normally today we would be having the 18th Sunday in ordinary time. I know you're very sorry that we're skipping that, uh, but it is August the 6th, and August the 6th each year is the Feast of the Transfiguration. Only every several years then would this ever fall on a Sunday where we can celebrate it together. And yet it's a very important moment in Jesus' life and the Gospels, and it's worthy of our reflection. The Transfiguration is a historical place and a historical event. If you go to the Holy Land to cross it off your bucket list, they'll take you to Mount Tabor and show you the very spot where today's gospel occurred. But more importantly, it is attested to by Matthew, today's gospel writer, but also Mark and Luke. And in all three of those accounts of the Transfiguration, each of them places it on a very important day in Jesus' life. Why? Because of something very critical that he told his apostles just before this occurred. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the transfiguration follows immediately after the first prediction of the passion, the first prediction of the passion. I remind you, when Jesus called the apostles, they left their nets and they followed him, but they asked nothing. They didn't ask, how does this pay? They didn't ask, where are you taking us? It was on transfiguration day that Jesus informed them what was going to happen to him. He told them about his destiny and his destination. The first prediction of the Passion means that Jesus informed those men that he was going to die for them. And it wasn't going to be a death of illness or natural causes or old age, and he wasn't going to get run over by a camel. Jesus informed them that he was going to experience betrayal, trial, scourging, a sentence to death, and he was going to be murdered in a most worst way on a cross, which to them was a curse. 
the Hebrew scripture said, cursed is the man that dies on a tree. Cursed is the man that is crucified. Well, this was met with despair, distress, and devastation. Those men had left everything to follow Jesus, and no, they didn't ask any questions. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have some hidden assumptions. And they were assuming that if he is God, if he is the Messiah, if he is the King of Kings, then he won't lead them to hardship. He's going to lead them to glory, to greatness and great things. For him then to tell them that he is going to be murdered, now they're beginning to guess, was this the right decision to get out of that boat and follow this man? And even though the news of Jesus' death was the cause of despair, distress, and devastation, what followed after that was even worse for them. He said, whoever wishes to follow me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That was Jesus telling them he wasn't the only one that was going to suffer. That if they continued to be his disciples, if they continued to preach and teach and heal in his name and for God's glory, it would come at a great cost. And it was going to cost some of their life, 10 of the 12, to be precise, would one day wear the martyr's crown. Understanding all of that then, all this doom and gloom and talk of death and betrayal, that sets the stage for what happens next. The 12, they disperse. Only Peter, James, and John go with Jesus up on top of Mount Tabor. And even though they have just heard some really bad news, they can't stay awake. They just fall asleep. And it's in the dark of night where they are awakened by a blindingly bright light. It's not an early sunrise, and it's not an eclipse. It's Jesus. Jesus like they've never seen him before. For those of us here in this part of the church, you can see it in that window right there. The middle window and the west wall and the cloudy day is capturing it quite perfectly. The transfiguration of Jesus on top of Mount Tabor. And it wasn't a spotlight coming down on him from heaven. He is the light. That's why we call our school, Lumen Christi, the light of Christ. Jesus is the light. And it was coming for him, forth from him like a lighthouse to show people the way to the Father's house. Lighthouses that help us to avoid all the dangers on the sea. Jesus helping us to avoid the dangers of sin, Satan, and death. And this was a miraculous sight. They could barely see it because they had to squint and hide their eyes. But his clothing, his hair, his skin, so white. But what's even more miraculous, he wasn't standing on top of the mountain. He was floating above it, and he was not alone. He was surrounded on the one side by Moses, on the other by Elijah. Moses to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law of the Hebrew Scriptures. Elijah to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets who foretold his coming. And Peter thinks, this is something special. He said, this is great. People are going to want to come here to see this. Let's make a shrine. Let's have pilgrimages. Let's build some tents. But quickly, his joy turns to terror. Not only is Jesus there, surrounded by ghosts, flouting on top of a mountain, but then all of a sudden, the heavens open, and the booming voice of God comes down and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Then Peter's joy turns to terror. But God's voice also serves a purpose. Just as we have Moses there to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, Elijah to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies that foretold his coming, God is speaking at this moment of the transfiguration to remind those apostles who just learned that Jesus would experience betrayal, trial, and death, that it was not a conspiracy or some sort of plot. It was God's plan. That's why God must speak at that moment 
from that mountain to let them know that Jesus' death was part of God's ultimate answer to our prayers, that he might take on and defeat our greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and death, breaking their chains forever and for everyone. And that clinches it then. That explains what the transfiguration is. For those who had just learned that Jesus was going to die, now they're seeing a snapshot of the resurrection. They're seeing a glimpse of the risen Christ before he even goes out to the cross to fulfill the Father's plan and to meet his destiny. And it would be a sign to them that would strengthen their faith when that faith was going to be shaken, just like the earth would shake and darkness covered it when the curtain was torn in the middle and the Son of God died on that cross for our sins. This story reminds us that out of the darkness, a great light shines. And even though it's darkest just before the dawn, the darkness will always be conquered by the light. And that is why God sent his son to seek and save the lost in the first place, a world still darkened by sin and death. We have that light shining bright that can show us the way out of here and the way home to the Father's house. But we then, like Peter, James, John, and the others, must still meet and fulfill the definition of discipleship as Jesus defines it. Those who wish to come after me must deny themselves, take up your crosses, and follow me. We have to be willing to suffer. Jesus was willing to suffer to accomplish the Father's plan. Jesus was willing to suffer in order to open heaven's gate. Stories like this remind us that it will be with blood, sweat, tears, fear, and trembling, carrying those crosses across the finish line of the race of faith so that we can see the face of God. And those crosses are many. And at times, those crosses are heavy. And at times, the way before us unclear. But if we can carry those crosses with the Lord, if we can carry those crosses for the Lord, then we know we do not carry those crosses alone. We don't carry those crosses forever. And we do not carry them in vain. Instead, we're carrying them in Jesus' name and for the glory of God that he who leads us to Calvary might eventually help us to find our victory over death, over darkness, over sin. And so, my friends, we come here to be encouraged, to be fed, to be nourished, to be inspired, and to be strengthened so that we can continue to deny ourselves our sin, our selfishness, our pride, and to live for him who died for us.